Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. September has just begun, leaves are falling from London's trees, and publishers are pushing out their heavyweight literary titles. So what better time, we thought, than to do a back-to-school, the ultimate reading list dun, dun, dun. Is there such thing as a summer read? Do we turn to more serious books in the autumn? What books are on this year's ultimate reading list? Very big questions. Yeah, we will be asking these very, very deep and important questions today. Um, so we've asked two excellent guests to help us answer them, haven't we, Octavia? We have. We have indeed. Um, first, we're going to talk to Dan Richards, whose latest book, Climbing Days, is about his amazing mountaineer great-great-aunt, Dorothy Pilly, and his attempt to follow in her footsteps, quite literally, um, from Wales to Spain to Switzerland, lots of icy alpine experiences. Um, and then we're going to hear from our friend, dear friend of Literary Friction, Anna Jean Hughes, who is the founder of the pioneering digital publisher, The Pigeonhole. Um, and she's joined us before in the show, so we're really looking forward to having her back. And we're going to ask both of them about the best books they read this summer and also anything they're looking forward to reading in the autumn. Then for our third segment, we'll be giving our own recommendations, discussing summer versus autumn reads, compiling an ultimate reading list, maybe, and then asking whether we even have the authority to do so. So stay tuned to Literary Fiction. For our first segment, we're delighted to be joined by Dan Richards. Hello, Dan. Hello. He is the author of The Beechwood Airship Interviews and Climbing Days, published in June by Faber and Faber. He is also the co-author with Stanley Donwood and Robert McFarlane of Holloway. He is currently the Rough Trade Writer-in-Residence and writes occasionally for The Quietest and Caught by the River. So, Dan, what we're going to do here on our um, Back to School, The Ultimate Reading List show is first we'll talk to you about Climbing Days, which is your most recent book, and then we'll be talking to you more generally about book recommendations, summer reading, fall reading autumn reading rather yes do you think our, you. our listeners will understand no they won't have a clue what you're talking okay, about okay good um so let's start by talking about climbing days this is in part a book about your quest to find your great great aunt dorothy pilly and sort of resurrect her in some sense so can you talk about first what interested you about this woman it all began because no one in the family appeared to know her or have known her terribly well um and there were rumors and there were quite a lot of stories about this astonishing lady and she sounded astonishing to me as a kid um, and I discovered her memoir um, having studied the work of her husband I.A. Richards whilst at university and I discovered Dorothy's memoir and I read it and I just discovered what an amazing pioneering lady she she was she had been and I thought I must go and try and engage with her because the family seemed to have somehow missed her, somehow missed her socially. So maybe I can go out because she was this extraordinary mountaineer and climber. I thought I will go and I will climb after her. I will go and try and seek her out in these landscapes that she writes about so wonderfully well. Um, and so it began as a bit of a, a bit of an odyssey. And I just, I just set out and discovered as I went the people who'd known her, people who still revere her, and these amazing stories. Did you know immediately that you wanted to literally follow in her footsteps and climb, actually climb the mountain rather than write from a bit more distance? I didn't think that... When, when, you, when, when you discover Dorothea, she is so vital. She, is so, she just embodies vivacity and energy, and I thought, I can't do it vicariously. I need to actually go and I need to engage. And it involved me properly learning to climb, you know, learning about ice climbing and alpinism and all of these things in the UK and across Europe. And I think that was really important to do to kind of have the, I don't know, some sort of integrity for the story. Because I think there was 
quite a lot of archival research, but that was the bit I enjoyed least, I think, and the sort of thing that Dorothy would have enjoyed. Dorothy would have enjoyed least as well, I think. Yeah, and I love that you go to Cambridge and you find all of these documents and things she's written, but she doesn't really come to life for you. You, you, you know, you can you can read her words, but you can't really understand who she was. And it's partially because she lived for the mountains, which is what she always said herself. Um, what one of the great things about this book is when you start out, and f- I don't think I'm being rude here. You weren't a great climber. Um, no. And <laughs> oh, burn, Gary. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't. I mean, that probably doesn't really count as spoilers no uh, I wasn't very good to be honest I'm still not very good I just um, managed to um, uh, get myself into situations where I didn't die Um, but yes um, I learned I had to learn a lot and it was a it was a very the the, you know the line of learning was fairly vertiginous it was fairly straight up you know going from naught to 60 fairly quickly can you talk a bit about what you had to do to learn to be a serious mountain climber um well I'd done a bit of climbing in scouts and things when I was a kid. Um, the main learning really happened in the Cairngorms. Um, there's a trust called the Jonathan Convog Trust. And the family set up this amazing um, organisation after Jonathan Convog um, died. He came off the north face of the Matterhorn. Um, and they set up, uh, rather than saying, well, we would discourage people from climbing mountains now because clearly it's dangerous, clearly you know it kills people. Um, they set up this amazing organisation which trains young people to be safe in the mountains, to enjoy them and come back. And I think that's such a wonderfully generous, humane reaction to a tragedy like that. And all the way through the book, there were, I met these people who had these terrible you know, losses because of the mountains. And never did anyone actually blame the mountains because the mountains just are themselves, you know. And the same with the weather, is just itself. And it's being in these spaces that I think is that people find so inspiring. So when I did the, the course in the Cairngorms, I was really learning how to safely be in some fairly savage landscape, um, how to safely traverse it. Did the experience change you fundamentally? the mountain climbing experience? Um, I think, well, I developed huge amounts of Stockholm syndrome based on some of the people I met who um, got me up the top of mountains in a fairly, I would say, you know, violently brusque fashion. Um, (laughs) But I think it just really straightens you out in terms of your respect for nature and the landscape. And also I learned a great deal about what I can do physically if I am, you know, pushed. Um, because, you know, the choices are fairly minimal when you're in certain situations. It's up or down. And, so, and sometimes it's, it's up very slowly or down very fast. Um, so, yes, I think it did change. It did change that. And it also, one of the things that changed hugely was my relationship with my father, actually, because I discovered that he had set out um, 30 years before I read Dorothy's memoir. He had set out to climb her roots... Um, in the UK and Switzerland because he felt a loss that he hadn't really made contact with her socially. There was a, just, you know, this social awkwardness. The kind of I said to my dad at one point, it's like your whole life up until the age of about 30 was being directed by Richard Curtis uh, in a sad way, like the Doctor <laughs> the Who episode man. with uh, Vincent van Gogh. It was very much like that. And so he went to um, Switzerland to climb this mountain, the Dent Blanche, which was the pinnacle of uh, Dorothy and Ivor's climbing lives, pinnacle of my book, and also the clinic, uh, pinnacle of Tim's climbing life. He went there, he 
climb this incredibly difficult ridge, this route up the side of a Dom Blanche, the Fepecla Ridge, with a friend. And they went, they got, they took their motorcycles down, they just saw it, they had their alpine guidebook, they went, they got up to the top, and then they walked down off the side of the mountain and, you know, got back home again. And it's such an amazing thing to have done for a young man. He never told Dorothy. Wow. He never told her because he didn't think, he had, didn't have the confidence in himself to ever think that she'd be interested. That's fascinating. And it's so tragic. Yeah. And actually, when I discovered that, I thought, well, in that way, this book, the Climbing Days book, is a gift for Tim. So I went back and I reclimbed the Dent Blanche with him. And we hadn't really done any climbing before. So it became this real family odyssey. And because our, you know, I've been up the Dent Blanche now twice. And the first time with Tim, it didn't really go to plan. I don't want to tell you too much about it. But there, were, there was a real um, feat of endurance and also a feat of... I think just, I don't know, that we, our emotional relationship, there was a long dark night of the soul, let's just say that, and we were sat sat out and um, had a lot of chats. And that's an extraordinary thing to happen as well. To I think it's so important that people, having discovered people's inability to talk to each other in generations of my family previous to me, I came away from writing this book thinking it's so important that people talk to their parents. It's so important that people try and engage with people's enthusiasms and with people's personalities and just talk to people while they're there. Because one of the great losses for me is that I have only been able to make contact with Ivor and Dorothy through their writings. So talking about all of that in a sort of fairly serious way, I, I know that you also quote Dr. Seuss in the book. Yeah. Um, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how, yes. uh, which I think is marvellous. And... I want to. I mean, do you think Dorothy had fun? Yes, I think she had huge fun. Um, I think that's the, that, the reason she started climbing was basically to escape the um, stultifying patriarchy at the time when she was growing Go up. Go girl! Um, and you know, she set up the Pinnacle Club, which is something I discovered. I went on a climb with these amazing ladies um, from the Pinnacle Club, which is a club that Dorothy co-founded, um, which was the first ever climbing club for women by women. I think Dorothy had fun when she was climbing. I, should, I think she would have had great fun reading the book because I spend quite a lot of it being um, either lambasted by people, rained on, or being inept uh, in, a, in, a, in a really sincere effort to follow in her footsteps. I mean, one of the things I learned was just how good she was as a climber. I mean, the the route she did in 1928 on the North Arete Blanche was not climbed again for 15 years. And she was, it's rarely climbed now. But they did that route and they were wearing tweeds, you know, and they had shoes with some spikes in and they were using a hemp rope. And they and their ice axes really didn't have any teeth on them. They were just like, you know, they were like using um, the sort of thing you get and um, grout out of bricks with. You know, these were pretty much climbing materials they were using. I mean, building materials rather than climbing materials. So um, just... You, get a huge amount of respect for what she did but yes I think she had huge fun I really got the impression that I would have loved to meet her in this book which is which you want you want a character that comes alive that's vivacious that's someone that you want to sit down and have a conversation with yeah. so um, thank you so much Dan I think you've given a sense of the real sense of adventure and fun and also you know it's a beautifully written book as well the way you describe the mountains and describe climbing is, is really wonderful so I'd uh, I'd recommend you all to put this on your ultimate reading list which is the theme of our show today so that very, in that, that incredibly awkward yeah, she's very good very isn't good. She? Really she's good. really an excellent was, artist of the segue i know that was a very awkward segue into our next section which is um we're going to be talking more generally about summer reading 
autumn reading, whether there's a difference between the two and books that you recommend. So first of all, um, could you just talk a bit about the books you read over the summer that you enjoyed? Um, yeah, certainly. I'm, I've brought a couple with me as um, aids to memory. Um, yeah, it's not very useful over the radio. No, uh, I was just going to hold them up and bang them into the microphone. Is that wrong? They look very uh, nice. Yes, thank you. Um, one of the things I've really enjoyed, one of the books, is Other People's Countries, um, A Journey into Memory by Patrick McGuinness, um, which is just the most extraordinary book of vignettes about his life growing up in Belgium um, and his family history. And it's just the most beautifully poetic study of sim- simplicity. And Alan Bennett says every family has a secret, and the secret is they're not like other families. And it's about his family, and it's about this small town and the changes that have come to it. It's very European, and I think that's one of the things that I love this summer. I've been reading quite a lot of European literature. Great. On to the next book. Um, well... Uh, you were talking about, you know, um, summer reads, and I realised that, you know, I've been reading um, uh, Wind, Sand and Stars by Saint Exbury, and, uh, you know, it is quite a summer read because it's mainly set in deserts. Um, you know, there's a thing about going to the beach. It's like the ultimate beach book in the sense of it's mainly set in the Sahara. Uh, you Pretty know, meta. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so beachy, there's no sea. You know, some of the experiences that um, Saint Exbury is talking about in that book um, were directly you know, uh, translated into A Little Prince, which is a book that I always loved and still do love. And I see there's a sequel coming out. Mm, I don't know how I feel about I'm that. Not, I'm not, I just saw this last night on a tube poster and I just stopped and somebody ran into the back of me and I just thought, what? I, I, I'm worried. But, um, I'm also worried. Okay, yes. and, and you've brought one more book. Uh, one more, which um, I, haven't, uh, I haven't really yet started. I've dipped in and out of in the last 48 hours, um, which is Questions of Travel, w- William Morris in Iceland. And I'm currently writing about Iceland uh, for a book proposal. And um, I just picked this up last night and I've just become completely lost in it. And I'm already up to page, let's say, 35. And um, he is just the most... I mean, I think a lot of people know William Morris as the draftsman, the designer. But he was a pre-Raphaelite poet. You know, he shared a house with um, Rossetti. And he, he got married. He had these this beautiful wife, these beautiful children, and he sat down shortly after getting married, shortly after he'd sorted out the wallpaper for his new house, and said, I'm going to Iceland, just so you all know. And at the time, that was a, that was a hell of a thing to do, you know, um, in the middle of the, I mean, late 19th century, I suppose. Um, but he was, he was drawn to it. He was absolutely insistent he was going to go, and he went and he wrote this most amazing travel book about it. Uh, and... I was just drawn in by the quote on the front, which is, a great mass of dark grey mountains worked into pyramids and shelves, looking as if they had been built and half ruined. And, you know, having written a book about mountains, I know how difficult it is, after a while, to describe mountains in new and exciting ways. (laughs) You can't keep using the same words, and I, I haven't read him yet repeat himself in this book, so that's extraordinary. He's a very, you know, verbose in the best sense. He has a great vernacular. It's wonderful. I'm interested that that's all it's all non-fiction um i have read other things i'm just re- talking about the things that i physically brought with me and that, well and um, that you loved but it's just interesting i'm always interested to find out what people's reading tastes are you know like i tend to be quite heavily in, in the fiction world mm. when i'm especially my summer reads i tend to like a kind of that sort of a narrative but obviously you know you're writing this it fits with the the territory you know it's yes nice. I mean, I don't want to make it sound too much of a busman's holiday. I just read books now about mountains and, you know, wastelands. Um, I also was reading um, 
they're republishing all of the Maigret novels. All the I love Maigret. Uh, I just adore it. Um, it's absolute manner from heaven. It's so well written. The plotting's extraordinarily just delicately beautiful. It's like a watch that's been put together. And um, I'm reading them all in order as they come out. Do you think that there is a real difference between the books we read in the summer and the books we read in the autumn? Or is that all just a marketing exercise? I'm not sure. I think maybe you read them differently, depending on the depending on the season. Um, oh, one of the things I read that I'm, um, is uh, The Beetlebone, which is... Um, Kevin we had Barry, Kevin who, on You had show. him on the yeah, show, yeah, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, it's a fabulous book, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I think, because I read that in the summer, I think that took the edge off some of the more um, sort of brutal landscape um, elements of it, because it's a fairly, you know, when he's describing the landscape, it's a fairly... I don't know, dour, shall we say, landscape of, 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 um, of Ireland that he's talking about. Talking about autumnal books, Alan Moore's just about to put out Jerusalem, which is about apparently a, a million words or, or near, near enough a million Ooh-wee. words. I will not be reading that. <laughs> and I think that is a proper, you know, hunkering down for autumn through to winter, possibly through to spring with those million words of Alan Moore. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And then, Dan, finally... If you had to recommend one book for our ultimate reading list, what would you recommend? I would recommend Sombrero Fallout by Richard Brautigan. Um Never heard of it. Me it's, neither. It's, I love the title. It's fantastic. Canongate put it out as part of their Canons series. Um, Richard Brautigan is a genius who should be better known. Um, Sombrero Fallout partly takes place in a waste paper basket where a writer of humorous books but who with no um, discernible sense of humour starts a book and then writes a couple of pages and then throws it in the bin at which point the book begins to write itself in the waste paper basket. Amazing. Um, He is completely obsessed and ruined by the fact he's broken up with his beautiful Japanese girlfriend. The first page of the book that he writes that's in the bin is about a sombrero falling out of a clear blue hot sky into a street in New Mexico and three men see the sombrero and all of them have a reason to pick it up and none of them do and then they all stand around and they look at each other and the story begins to accelerate in the bin where it gets to some sort of nuclear holocaust that happens because of this sombrero it's incredibly funny at one point a librarian gets her ears shot off um, there are, oh, it's amazing. And I love the fact that John Classen has just um, put out, or he's going to put out the last of the three books about hats. I want my hat back. This is not my hat. And this one is We Found a Hat. And it involves two tortoises looking at a sombrero. So if I could give you two books, um, or maybe four, they would be all the John Classens about hats. Hat which are the best books ever. Um, sombrero Fallout, which is about a sombrero, which I just have given to so many people. And I buy them in bulk and I just hand them out. And you need this in your life, people. <clears throat> okay. Thank you. Autumn, autumn is also hat season, just getting that in there. Yes, yeah. yes, there you go. So now. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, and Dan Richard's latest book is called Climbing Days, and it is out in bookstores now. Welcome back to Literary Friction. For our second segment, we're joined by Anna Jean Hughes from The Pigeonhole, an innovative digital publisher that describes itself as a global book club in your pocket. 
Anna has been working in the publishing industry for almost 10 years, and she was named a rising star of the publishing industry by the bookseller. She's pretty badass. And shortlisted for the Digital Achiever of the Year Award at the Future Book Conference in 2015. Um, hi, Anna. We're really thrilled that you could join us today. Thank hi. you, Anna. <laughs> You're very welcome. Welcome back. We had you on years ago, didn't we? Was it years ago? I Maybe it was, it was last, like last year. year. A couple, couple of years, I yeah. think. God, time flies. Yeah, it did. So for any listeners who weren't listening then, can you just remind us what the pigeonhole is and does? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it came from quite a, a different place than it is now. So I worked in the, as I, uh, Octavia said, I worked for publishing, uh, in publishing for so long. And I just saw that there was a big gap between the author and their readers. And we were trying to bridge that gap with the pigeonhole. And what started as us publishing uh, short stories and novels in serialization um, and serialized form to a web reader or an app has kind of grown into a social reading platform to take any book, whether it's from a publisher or an agency or books that we find, um, and then serializing them up and putting them onto an app again. But we create a whole reading experience around it. So it's about the community uh, drive creating a conversation within the app so people can talk to each other, they can talk to the author, they can talk to other readers about the excitement around the book, and also just lots of extra content inside, like little Q&As and videos, and just making the reading experience that much more interesting, and uh, sort of offering authors a platform by which to launch themselves digitally, and also to just engage with their audience better. And can you give us an example of a really exciting thing you've done recently? Yeah, we've actually we've got so many books coming up and so many things that are happening. The one that I'm really, really excited about is 100 Shadows, which is coming from uh, Tilted Axis, which is a small uh, indie I, I press. should just say, we yeah. just interviewed Deborah Smith oh, on the she's last show. awesome. I've kind of got a massive fan crush on her. I think she thinks it's a bit weird. But she, yeah, so they, they just are dedicated to finding um, translated uh, literature from around the world, largely from Asia. And this book is from South Korea. And it's just an incredibly offbeat, urban, gritty, strange, fantastical novel. And it's wonderful to be able to offer it, uh, not only to a digital audience, but also to uh, a kind of a English reading um, audience as well. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. If I wanted to get the pigeonhole, how would I go about doing Just it? Just go on the app store and download it. I mean, the, the best place to find out more about it is, is on the web and it's just pigeonhole.com. And then app store, you just put in the pigeonhole and it pops up and download the app for free. And the books, we, we launch each of our books with a limited edition slot. So that the idea is to try and get as many people sort of baseline readers as possible by giving them this exclusive material for free. And then it flips into a pay model. So none of our books are more than 2 99 it's a really sexy little app as well. It is a sexy app. It's a very it sexy is. app. What would you say to people who say that they don't want to read things on a phone? Well, I think it's a different... Oh, it's horses for courses, isn't it? I mean, we were never trying to offer an alternative to print. And what's nice about the, the place we are now, which is working predominantly with publishers, is there's always a print edition and there will always be links to their print edition. Whether you want to buy it off Amazon or whether you want to buy it off their website or whether you want to buy it in a shop, you can just learn more about the book from the pigeonhole as well as you know going into a bookshop and browsing it's, it's another browsing sp space really um and that's something that we wanted very much to offer to publishers is a place for discoverability but when it comes to reading on your phone i mean there's just always a moment when you're going to have some spare time when you're bored waiting for a bath or breastfeeding or waiting for your kids and i just think rather than playing candy crush or talking crap on twitter why don't you just read a book and learn something and that's that's what it's for is it's just so that you can fit any reading into any lifestyle 
So changing tack slightly, I really want to know what you read over the summer. I love talking to people in the industry about what they're reading because they tend to have a slightly different way into everything. It's really, it's weird. I've, I've read so much stuff from publishers at the moment. Which is, I mean, there are so many great books coming out and they're very, very exciting. And actually the best bit I'd say of my job at the moment is just being sent piles of proofs. I just, I've never got, gotten over going to a publishing company and coming back with just boxes of books. And I get really greedy and grabby and it's quite awkward. I have to really chill that out. But another thing I've been doing is making sure that I read as much non-work stuff. And I've just completely fallen in love with Shirley Jackson. I think she is pretty much the best writer I've discovered of late. I just think she's just jaw-droppingly good. And I had nightmares when I was reading um, The Haunting of Hill House. And I've just finished We've, We've Always Lived in the Castle. And I just, I think she's magic. <laughs> but uh, Can you tell us a bit about Shirley Jackson? What's her story? Well, I, I didn't know anything about her. I mean, I've only read the biography, her biography. And then I read a weird interview with her. She's just the queen of, of very, very restrained horror. I mean, it, they are these characters who are incredibly erudite and quite classy, I think. But I think maybe that's because they're of another era and another time. They all strike me as kind of Catherine Hepburn type characters. Um, but yeah, she's the thing I've, I've kind of relished this year. Um, I've also been trying to work my way through, you know, the big books of the year. And one of them was A Little Life, which I gave to my mum to read and she absolutely hates it. I've never heard her have such a disgusted <laughs> reaction to anything. And I'm really enjoying baiting her about it. But I, I think the weird thing is I listened to it on Audible and I just, I'm not sure... I don't know what you got. You guys think about this. I'm not sure reading a book on a, well, listening to a book is the same as reading it. I don't think you get the same from it. And having it dramatized for you, I think, means that you enjoy it a lot more than you should. And I, I mean, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I thought it was a, a massive feat. Oh yeah, we're, Octavia and I both want to weigh in on this. Um, we've we've already talked a lot about real uh, life yeah. on this show. I think because everyone's reading it and everyone yeah. has something to say about it because it's such a, a controversial book. Um, this is. A Little Life by Hana, Hanya Yanagihara, um, which, in addition to be being nominated for loads of prizes, was also just a talking point, I think, for mm. lots of people about these four friends. It's a lot about abuse. Um, yeah. It's quite intense. But I, um, it, this audiobook question is very interesting to me because I think some books, I listen to the audiobooks, and I, I, I think it always is a different experience. But I think there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be lost mm. from an audiobook, and I th and and it's almost like reading a different book. Completely. I mean, I only started doing it just because it's so much easier to fit it in. I mean, if you're trying to read that many more, especially when the publishers start sending us kind of piles of stuff, mm. um, and they're always on Audible, and it's it, I love their I love their tagline for when your eyes are busy and your ears are free. It's just so cool, and that's exactly what I use it for. But I mean, a little life. I don't know. I, it struck me as Charles Dickens. It was just Oliver Twist, but for the modern era, so it's just full of this torturous, quite pornographic levels of of grief, which in in an audio context is is fascinating. Um, uh, other stuff, I, I really love Paul Kalanithi's um, When Breath Becomes Air. Um, he talks about a book called How We Die by this guy called Shep Newland, which I, I read when I was little because my mum was desperate to be a doctor and she just used to supply us with all of this really horrible stuff. And this book, it's 10 stories about the kind of the various deaths, so kind of cardiac arrest or trauma. And, um, and Although Paul Kalanithi's book is completely different. I mean, his is about life, not death. I thought it was mesmerizing. And just this reading a guy who had planned to be an author all his life and it had come only from necessity rather than the actual desire. 
I just I thought it was incredible. Yeah. So it's, it's a book about a um he's a surgeon, right? He's I a haven't neurosurgeon. actually yeah, a neurosurgeon yeah. who gets cancer um and writing about his experience in a non-fiction book um which I haven't read yet but everyone says it's, it's incredibly amazing. affecting. Yeah, and his, well his wife finishes it which kind of reminded me of um you know that uh Master Margarita was finished by I, I, I just I think that it gives it an incredible a, a weird balance because it shouldn't give it a balance you should make it feel slightly off kilter but it does it gives it a balance to hear the voice of the woman that he talks about but also just neurosurgery is so insane I mean there's this one brilliant moment in the book where he's talking to a guy from uh, A&E or ER and um, the guy's had a really bad day and he's lost a patient and he's just saying to Paul you know how was your day and then Paul describes some horrific thing I think it's a eight-year-old who's had a brain tumour who he's accidentally well not accidentally but it's not come out well and the guy from the ER says you know I always forget how great it is talking to neurosurgeons you just make me feel so much better about myself <laughs> it's just oh my this, god it's yeah yeah that, that level of of insanity when you I think m- medical books are fascinating you know books written by doctors and I'm, I've been become obsessed again with Oliver Sacks recently who's just the most remarkable man extraordinary man um the man who mistook his wife for a hat is one of his books but he does a lot of podcasts he did he obviously passed away i think last year mm-hmm. maybe um but he is a big contrib- contributor he was a big i don't want him to be dead so i can't put it in the past tense <laughs> he was a big contributor to radio lab and i was listening to a lot of radio lab recently because i went down this oliver sacks mind hole um because it is, yeah, the, it's just such rich territory. It's fascinating. It is. It has such a wonderful voice. Oh, as the well. best, yeah, the best. The Argonauts by Megan yeah, Nelson. Yeah. That's another book I read this year, which blew my mind, but probably not in the right way. I just found it very... So it's a book about being in a uh, relationship with a trans man, and he and Maggie decide to have a baby. And it's more, much more about the concept of... I guess acceptance and of uh, being part of a completely new norm and what it means to be any gender, which is fascinating. But what was scary, I thought, was even in homonormativity, there are so many pressures to conform or mm. not conform, as it may be. And I thought that that was something that I've certainly spoken to some of my friends about who felt pressured into certain social situations that were not they're not comfortable with because it is their norm and how unhappy that made them and it's just blew, blew my mind all right so great reading list from anna there we have shirley jackson we have hanya yonagahara a little life we have when breath becomes air by paul kalanithi and the argonauts by maggie nelson yeah. also dennis johnson jesus's son i just have to slip that in there yeah. i read that i read that a brilliant book it just, yeah. um so before we end anna can you talk a bit about summer reading versus autumn reading do you think it's a thing do you think we read differently in the summer i definitely do actually that i've always it's that thing of taking a massive 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 stonky book off on holiday with your I mean I never interestingly I never read digitally on holiday unless I'm reading for work I always always take a massive paperback um and the last big holiday I went on which I didn't go to do on this year but I took um even Cowgirls Get the Blues out last year because it was just the biggest book I could find and it's Tom Robbins and it's so brilliant and then it comes to autumn I just feel there's a certain weight in the air and you feel more everything just feels slightly more weighty and slightly more important there's an imperative to not be serious but I guess to um, think more carefully about your reading list so actually I've planned I've planned a big reading list I'm like nutshells the next thing I'm going to read because oh, I'm so excited about that book 
I've heard mixed things. No, like, really. Sh- really? Fuck. But he's, I, so he wrote three of my favorite books, which are First Love, this Last Rights. This is by Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. His First Love, Last Rights was the first book he wrote when he was 22. And you're reading it going, how, the, did, how did you write that? How did you do that when you were 22? I mean, there's a short story in it about uh, two boys, one who lives in a kind of a squat, pretty much. And this sort of fat lady comes to live. This fat, sweet lady who makes lots of cakes comes to live with them. And she kind of looks after them for a while. And there's just a scene when they're on a boat and sh- they are laughing at something and she plops into the water and drowns and that's just the end of the short story and it's so like odd this kind of something appalling happens and life just continues and he wrote the dreamer which is a children's book in the same vein and then also something garden there's three of my favorite books and then he just got really into this like research bent which meant that satire was so boring it's like we get it you followed as a neurosurgeon i think it was henry marsh actually and it's just it's just stop enough it's not it's not fiction when you're writing that level of detail i don't think so in a nutshell i thought well, he can't it's so beyond the trope he can't possibly talk about that much research so i was really excited about it purely for that reason i was like it's just going to be so much more of his mind yeah. so that yeah that feels like an autumn book you know and if you had to add one book to our ultimate reading list for this autumn, what would it be? Oh, I think actually it would be Shirley Jackson. We've always lived in the castle. It is actually now on my reading list because Anna very sweetly brought me a copy of both of those books. So. It's wonderfully creepy. Oh, I, I, I can't wait. Book. I'm excited. Yeah. Also, creepiness is perfect for when the nights start to draw in and, you know, the winter starts to crisp along in the air. And... Yeah, I mean, The Haunting of Hill House gave me nightmares. I mean, it really did. I had dreams of people walking into my room. Um, which is better. You might have to come and stay with me when I'm reading it. I'm done with that. We'll have a we'll have a duvet party. It's, fine. <laughs> it's all getting very <laughs> strange on this show today, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Anna. It's You're been a pleasure. Welcome. Anna Jean Hughes, as we said, is the uh, founder of the Pigeonhole and also a wonderful recommender of books. <laughs> Okay, we're back again on literary friction. And for our third and final segment, we are going to be talking about books we read over the summer that we love, books we're looking forward to, and our ultimate reading list, I suppose. Maybe. Um, So, Octavia, do you want to start by talking about some books you read over the summer and and that you would recommend? I would love to. Uh, I had some really, really beautiful reading experiences over the summer, actually, which was a a thrill for me. and I did that thing that you are supposed to do. I went somewhere hot with some dear friends and just spent a lot of time reading, not wearing any clothes, swimming in the swimming pool, taking myself to this other level of uh, consciousness. Um, and one of the books I read that I adored is The Lesser Bohemians by Ima McBride, but I'm not going to talk about it very much because we may or may not be interviewing she's her about this book quite she's soon. She's coming on our next show. She's coming fact. on our next show. It's very I'm exciting. so excited about it because the book is phenomenal. But I'm going to leave that one. Um, Nicotine by Nell Zink. Uh, I loved and a very very different kind of book it's about uh, it's classic zinc I guess it's kind of about eco-terrorism rebellion living against the grain um, lots of anarchists but it's also really about corruption and hypocrisy and it's very funny and very very caustic she's really yeah she's harsh I think I mentioned it on our last show actually because I was reading it at the time Um, but I do I think it's great it's satire Um, very sexy also she yeah there's a lot of sex in her books which I think she pulls off really well because she's making an interesting commentary about it Um, and then one of the other ones and this is a really big surprise for me was uh, one of Hilary Mantel's 
old books. It was published in 1988 called Eight Months on Gaza Street. And I came across it because it was on Radio 4 Book at Bedtime, which uh-huh. everybody knows. I love a good Radio 4 Book at Bedtime. Um, and I, I, it inspired me to go and pick up the text and actually read it with my eyes rather than my ears. And I think I finally found my way into Mantel. It's really a, a, a very good book. And it speaks to me um, for some personal reasons as well. It's about this English woman who moves to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia um, and her experience in this completely foreign world. And back in the 80s, you know, Saudi was even more strict yeah, than it is now. that's based on experience that yeah, Mantel actually had, right? Exactly. Yeah. She went and so she, her husband in the book, who's an engineer, gets a job there. Uh, very lucrative work. So they go and she's plunged into this m- very um, different environment. But really it's a murder mystery, basically, essentially. It's a good old... Uh, thriller and I my family and I moved to Hong Kong when I was much younger and the experience that she's describing her her main character Frances Shaw um, goes through tallied so much with experiences that I had and that my mother had so it was really um, it was a kind of amazing Proustian taking me back in time even though the cultures it's describing are completely different but this idea of you know a, a, a a woman coming from a developed Western culture where she's allowed a lot of freedom and independence and being put into a culture that's very different. But within that, there's an expatriate, uh, expatriate experience that's incredibly rarefied. And I think probably doesn't, hopefully doesn't exist in the same way now it did then. I mean, when we were in Hong Kong, it was the 90s. So, you know, not that different. Um, but yeah, I, I still don't want to read Wolf Hall. You know, I thought that was a great book and I, I like her writing, but but it still doesn't make me want to read Wolf Hall. Yeah, two comments on that. One, I think Wolf Hall is overrated. Yeah. Um, but I also wonder if I feel that way because I those, like Thomas Cromwell, I didn't even know who he was before I started reading that. English history, Tudor history isn't as drilled into my brain as I think it is for English people. Yeah, and so I, for me. I spent a lot of that novel confused, which I'm really like... I, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit, but I, I really did not know what was going on for Don't a lot be of the embarrassed time. At all. Maybe I need to read it again. Um, and also we're going to get like hate mail for suggesting that it's overrated. And then uh, second of all, I love how much you love Book at Bedtime because I always <laughs> I love it so much. I, I was like, I always sort of wondered what kind of person would love it. And it's you. And I, that it's makes me really me. happy. It's 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 like a beautiful ritual I have um, at nighttime when I'm brushing my teeth. It's it's on at like 10 or something, but I often listen to it on iPlayer. Yeah, I love it. And it's introduced me to some really excellent books that I wouldn't have picked up otherwise. Also, sometimes the books are terrible and that's always a big shame. Um, but recently they've had a good run of it. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Maybe I'll try it. I probably won't. But um, so I'm going to also recommend a few books. Yeah, please. I, I want to hear. So I haven't been on holiday yet, really. Um, so I haven't had those. Because life is hard. I know. <laughs> well, I'm going in September, so it's fine. But um, but I think, and we'll maybe get to this more later, but I, I do think you're right that the best reading I've done for the most part has been when I just have long stretches of time and not very much to do and can really become absorbed in a book. I mean, that's when I read, I I was on holiday when I read The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, which I've talked about a couple of times. But for me, that was a totally transformative reading experience, so much so that I couldn't even really talk to anyone for a few hours afterwards. I was so absorbed in the book and so moved by it. Um, And that only really happens to me when there's nothing else around to distract me um so i'm really looking forward to that on my holiday and i'll be giving my reading list for 
my holiday in a, in a little bit. But for now, um, I did still read some really fabulous books this summer. Um, the first is a book that you actually can read in one sitting no matter what you're doing because it's incredibly short. I think I read it in maybe two or three hours. It's called The Dig by Cunnan Jones. He's a Welsh author and it was published a couple of years ago. Um, it's not the kind of book I usually like because it's sort of like tautly written and about masculinity. And maybe the author would argue about that, but I think the appeal is sort of like man and nature. But it's so, it, it's the story of this farmer um, who's who's living alone on his farm and a badger baiter who comes um, to find a badger and it sort of alternates between their two points of view and obviously they, they, they eventually come into conflict with each other. I won't really say anything more. Um, but it's so moving in a way that I just didn't expect. It's really beautifully written. Every time Carrie says the word so, she shuts her eyes in ecstasy. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we it's should a, all read this a, book. It's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful book and it's very emotionally true and also just captures um, the specificity of the landscape that it's talking about in such a beautiful um, and coherent way. Uh, and I, I would really recommend it. It's, it was quite an experience to read, talking of that sort of experiential kind of reading. And I, I loved it. Um, another one I would recommend, which is sort of a, another mood book in a way, is um, it's, on the, it's on the Man Booker long list this year. It's called Eileen by Atessa Moshfei. Um, so published this year recently, uh, she's an American author from Boston, actually. And it is a really weird, unsettling book. It's about um, the main character. It's told in the first person, uh, this woman who is living with her father in the 60s in a sort of small town outside of Boston. She doesn't ever say where it is. It's sort of a depressed coastal town in New England. And um just a very twisted strange woman and we sense that something is going we know something's going to happen which means she leaves her home forever and never comes back um and she's telling the story of the three days before it happened um and just it just gets creepier and weirder and weirder and i really enjoyed just being inside that narrative voice being unsettled by it so i would recommend that for a very different kind of reading experience. Um, and then finally, if we're talking about beach reads and just pure fun, and I don't know if that, uh, I think people should not feel guilty about reading. And I think this kind of reading can be done any time of year by anyone. Um, and, and there are plenty of quote unquote fun, um, easy books to read that are also very good books. I don't know if the book I'm about to recommend is a great book, but I would really recommend it just because it was so much fun. Um, it's Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, Curtis Sittenfeld has been on the scene for a while. She's one of those writers who gets pigeonholed as a women's fiction writer um, who actually writes much more interesting and complex books. Her her most well-known is probably American Wife, which is about Laura Bush and uh, sort of from her perspective. Uh, she's very good at sort of picking apart the, the internal lives of people who you wouldn't necessarily think had that interesting internal lives. And she is also just a really fun writer to read. Eligible is her update of Pride and Prejudice set in Cleveland, <laughs> which I was so <laughs> not ready to approach. And then I had to read it for my book club and I really enjoyed it. It, it's, it has a lot of flaws and some of it feels very old fashioned in a way that I would love to discuss with somebody who who's read it as well. But if you just want a book to like sort of flip through and have great fun with, I'd really recommend this one. 
snobbery snobbery about books can hold us back from so much as well yeah you know? yeah like exactly about genre and yeah it sounds i they all sound fabulous um so let's move on what books are we looking forward to reading in the fall just very quickly um well i'm gonna race through a couple because Anna, as Anna mentioned, Nutshell by Ian McEwan, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to reading it, even if you say you've heard mixed things. Um, just quickly for anyone who doesn't know, it's kind of a retelling of Hamlet, but through the eyes of a fetus. Um, and Elsinore is, is London's wealthy St. John's Wood, and Gertrude becomes this wine-quaffing mother-to-be, and who knows? And then Claude, uh, Claudius becomes Claude, who's, um, this is the blurb from the publisher's website, an insufferable bore capable only of speaking in cliches, which suggests that maybe that reading experience won't be that pleasurable because, you know, that sounds well, like a James bit of a James Joyce did a whole chapter, or episode rather, in cliches. That is very true. So, you know, I, I think it sounds, it sounds interesting. It sounds kind of fizzy and exciting, which in the autumn, I suffer terribly from SAD and I find the, the darkness creeping in on me miserable. And when I read the pressy of that, I thought, okay, that could be kind of lifting. Conversely, the other one, I'm just reading A Little Life. I've only just begun. And I think, I don't know, I kind of wish I, I'd done it in the daylight. Now it's going to start getting creepy and dark and I know it's going to get very intense. Um, I'm very, very close to the beginning. So it's everything is still fun for them um, and I'm enjoying it. So we'll see. Um, I'm determined to finish it. Then I'm really excited about a book called All at Sea by Decca Aitkenhead. She writes for The Guardian, um, among other things. And it's a nonfiction book, a sort of memoir about her experience and she's had an unbelievably heartbreaking time. Um, her partner drowned on holiday trying to save one of their sons and she wrote a, a long article about it that was uh, incredibly moving but I think she's a phenomenally talented writer um, and very wise human being so I'm excited about that. And then lastly, quickly sliding this in there, At the Existentialist Cafe, Freedom Being and Apricot Cocktails by Sarah Bakewell. Um, who was a biographer of Montaigne and a pretty heavy hitter. And she's now done this group study on um, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Raymond Aron and other thinkers. And it's about the story of existentialism, existentialism basically, and also anti-colonialism, feminism, gay rights. So, you know, a real wild, wild card for me there. Um, but I find, yeah, autumn gives me a case of the existentials a lot. So I thought I'm just gonna go into it. I'm not gonna fight it. I'm gonna go deep in and I'm gonna learn some, some more stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, I do get contemplative in autumn as well. Um, but I am going on a holiday to California in September. I'm so, so jealous, I'm having God. a late um, summer holiday. And so my list for that trip, I think, is very much on that holiday uh, trajectory of just having time to read a book that you've meant to read for a while. So, so it's quite an ambitious list, but um, things I'm looking forward to Swing Time by Zadie Smith. This is her new novel, and it is about two friends who dream of being dancers whose friendship ends in their early 20s when their lives take two very different directions. Um, Zadie, I think, almost became dreamed of being a jazz singer or something like that, so this is her novel about music, and I can't, I can't wait to read it. Um, another one, My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. Uh, Elizabeth Strauss wrote a book called Olive Kittredge, which some listeners may have heard of. Um, this book is on the Booker Long List, and I think it won some awards in the States as well. Uh, it's about a daughter in the hospital and a mother who comes to her bedside and sort of the conversations they have. It's a very slim volume, but I, it's been recommended to me by a number of people, and it's one of those books that 
that's a ver- about a very small thing, but is actually about many more things. Um, and of course, the relationship between mothers and daughters. Um, I've I've been meaning to read Henry James for a while, and I'm finally going to try to... I've only read Daisy Miller, which I don't think is a very good representation of his fiction. Uh, everyone I talk to about what kind of fiction I like always says I need to read Henry James. So I am going to bring the brick called Portrait of a Lady by Henry James on my holiday, and hopefully I'll have read it by the time I return. And finally, um, The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, which has been recommended to me by numerous people, including lovely Octavia Bright. (laughs) So that's, yeah, that's what's on my list. Now, let's talk about something we touched on with Anna and Dan as well, which is, do you think there's a difference between summer reading and the reading we do in, in the autumn? Do you think do you pick out different books for those times? I do. I know I do. I know that I'm more likely to approach a big, long tome in the autumn going into winter, where I anticipate spending a lot more time curled up on my sofa reading it, drinking tea. Um, in the summer, I find my life tends to be very outside and energetic, and I have less time for reading. Yeah, I, I, I definitely read differently, but I also, because I'm still in the academic school system, you know, September for me is actually legitimately back to school, and that definitely has an effect on, I start to feel um, anxious, and frivolity feels like something I have to put to one side in my choice of books as well. I think it probably bleeds in. Um, and obviously September in the academic calendar is the beginning of a new year, so... I think there probably is a bit of that like new year, new me thing that comes into my literary choices. I, it's interesting you saying about Portrait of a Lady. I've got some some books of that ilk, you know, old classics that I've always meant to read and never have. And I think September feels like a more legitimate time to pick them up than June, for example, you know? Yeah, I would say, I would say it's similar for me. Obviously, I have a full-time job that I have to work in, whether it's summer or or winter, but it's funny how we all still group our lives around the the school calendar, even if we're working all the time. There's a real sense, and you know, it's partially people going on holiday, but it is there is a sense, even in the working world, I think, of September being the time when you sort of get back to serious things. And I wouldn't say that I necessarily pick up big novels because I'm usually more busy in the autumn, um, just with various things with everyone returning. And, and it's hard to, I find with really large novels, I need a big chunk of time to actually read them. But I think I do maybe pick up books that I feel will be, um, will educate me as well as entertain me, which I, do, which I don't think I don't like to think in that way, but I think I probably do think in that way. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, in French, they call it la rentrée, the the returning. That's what this time of year is called, because it is that thing. They have this huge, epic, long summer holiday. Um, But also, I suppose we're still structured around a school system because people have children that are in school. Yeah, I forget that sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I quite often forget that too. Apparently, it's something that people do, though, babe. I don't know. It's a a life choice or something. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but also... I mean, we've created a society that encourages us to become institu- institutionalized, I think, by these by certain trends and, and, and sort of ways of thinking. Yeah, but you could look at that in a more positive way and say, isn't it, isn't it sort of lovely to have different times of the year to do different things? I think, you know, feeling that we're in a cyclical world, a cyclical seasonal world is actually quite a comforting thing to have holidays to look forward to and feelings to look forward to and experiences to look forward to, I think is what keeps people going. And there's an excitement to 
the return of fall that maybe wouldn't be the case if it was just the days getting longer and darker and less warm yeah absolutely with that wonderful crisp in the air it's just started to happen the air you can it sort of tastes a bit different and it's starting to smell a bit different and that smell when the leaves start to break down and it's beautiful i just can't bear january and february and find actually when we get into full winter I don't read very much either. I just basically want to mong out and watch whatever Netflix thing is happening. <laughs> um, yeah, I find my, my mind gets very sluggish and it's that, it's the short days. It, it, I really can't cope with it at all. Yeah, it's so, and I think um, it, to, to flip it around a bit, the, the season in which you read things probably really affects how you feel about the thing that you're reading. Absolutely. I first read um, the first volume of Proust's In Search of Lost Time in Paris in the winter. And no, in, well, in the autumn, slipping into winter, sort of October, November, December. And um, it will always make me, it will always bring back those sights and smells of that city and that time. And, you know, it's it's a book I return to quite often, actually. So it, it is just like stepping into this. And because Proust's writing room, you can see it at the, oh, is it the Musée Canivale, I think? And I used to go in there and like stare at the weird cork board on the walls yeah. and his walking stick. Well, it's also a book all about retrieving memories. Exactly. So I, yeah. I can imagine why that would be extra evocative. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I was eating Madeleine's as I read the book. Oh, so cliche. No, I that's know. wonderful. I think it's, <laughs> it's great that you, you love did me, that. Bitch. Excuse me. <laughs> um, so uh, for our final little thing, ultimate reading list, do you think we've succeeded? Do you think we needed a gimmicky show and made it work or have we failed i think we did a bit of crowbarring but i think that's fine um i loved what you said in the in the intro actually about who are we to compile an ultimate reading list and i think i've banged on about my distaste for the canon and canonical things on the show before um and i suppose an ultimate reading list is, is kind of another kind of canon and i don't know ethically how i feel about it at the same time one of the things that has come out of the show for me is just being made aware of how many phenomenal books there are in the world and the fact that we don't have time to read all of them and so thinking about that it is helpful to have someone give you an ultimate reading list as a reader you know I, I love for example your book recommendations I always take seriously I've got a few other friends as well if they tell Aww. me to read things yeah no it's true I try same, same to you snap oh we're disgusting um yeah I uh there are a few friends who I really, I respect their opinion uh, about literature, but also friends who don't necessarily recommend things that they think I'll like. They'll say, you know, this is a great book. And often, well, A Little Life, for example, I don't think I would have picked that up. It's not something I would choose to read, but your experience of reading it and, the, and that of a few other people, I felt like I couldn't miss out, you know? Yeah. Um, I think we live in the age of clickbait and listicles. And so there, there's a lot of pressure actually to say so that something listicle. is ultimate or the best or the you know the only list you need mm. um and we've bowed to that pressure in some sense Listicle but i think it makes me think of testicle i can't yeah. stop thinking of it. okay sorry let's <laughs> move on from that. move on from that um but i but you know i i think recommendations are great aren't they that's most of the books that i read for pleasure are based on recommendations from friends yeah exactly well otherwise how are you going to pick i think also one of the things i love about buying books in bookshops is browsing and being pulled into that you know, experience and so many people buy books online now that I'm sure having recommendations. I mean, Amazon chucks all its recommendations at you based on what you've bought. It's 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 phenomenal. I feel like I could talk about it for hours. I'm going to shut up now. Okay. Well, that was Carrie and Octavia's ultimate reading list. I'm sure it's exactly what you expected. 
Um, and I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to our interviewees, Dan Richards and Anna Jean Hughes, and also to Eddie Knight, as always, for sound and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please leave comments and give us a rating. We really love to hear from you. Yes, and we will be back in a month with, as we said, Emer McBride talking about her new novel, The Lesser Bohemians. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.